the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. I want you to try, if you can, to think about the last time you introduced yourself to someone. What did you say? How did you describe yourself? Obviously, most of us start with our name. But then what else did you say? What if I told you that you had to introduce yourself to someone without talking about work and without talking about relationships? You just have to talk about you. What would you say? A couple of weeks ago, I read an article that suggested that we, those of us th- you know, from the ages of about 25 to 75, don't have the ability to talk about ourselves without talking about our work or our immediate relationships. Now there's some suggestion that for those of you who are retired and have been retired for a while that that shifts and that's great, congratulations. (laughs) But even for you then in this equation, you wouldn't be able to talk about what you did, what your work was. And I wanna be clear here to say that I think there are lots of different kinds of work, right? I think the mom who stays home with her babies is working really hard. I think people who volunteer and serve on boards and are parts of all kinds of philanthropic efforts are also working really hard. So I'm not just talking about your specific you know, job, if that's what you have. And this article suggested that really, if you take away the idea that we can talk about our work, what we do, and then our immediate relationships. So like I would say that I'm a mama and I'm a wife and I'm a friend. If you take all of that away, what's left is just you. The things that make you you sort of internally that maybe you don't talk about as often. What would you say? When we find Jesus this morning, he is at the very beginning of his ministry in Mark. And this is his introduction to the people. This is how he introduces himself. He's just done what we heard last week, walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he's called all these people to follow him. And now he shows up in public for the first time, and this is what he does. He walks into the synagogue on Sunday morning, so to speak, and introduces himself by teaching with authority. And so far, I think he's done pretty well about his, with our little challenge, right? He hasn't mentioned that he's a carpenter, He hasn't mentioned necessarily that he's a prophet, to our knowledge at least. And he hasn't mentioned that he's anyone's son, not Mary and Joseph and not God either, because that's a heck of an introduction. Hi, I'm Jesus, I'm the son of God. That would have been one way to go. He does that in the other gospels plenty of times, but not here, not now. And this is him kind of breaking in. And the truth is that all of these texts that we heard this morning are complicated and they all have their own very unique contexts. And unlike last week, there's no real way for me to skim the surface and touch all of them. So we're gonna look at the gospel, which is complicated enough in itself. And often, you know, it's the case in Mark that we get these very simple descriptions, but they're packed with detail. And even though it seems like sort of a complicated scene that's crushed into a little bit, there's always something else, some other kind of something that is under the surface that we have to dig a little bit to get to. This week in his weekly commentary about the gospel passage, 
Andrew McGowan, who's a scholar and a, a dean of the seminary that I went to at Berkeley Divinity School, he said this about this passage. While the combination of teaching, controversy, and healing or exorcism seems like a lot, there is a single theme. Jesus is introduced as the authoritative teacher and healer who announces the alternative reign of God in word and deed to characters who are either subject to the existing reign of sin and evil or who personify that reign. Jesus is not coming to teach a better life or to talk about religion, but to liberate Israel from the forces of evil. To liberate Israel from the forces of evil. Jesus has come and Mark has given us this scene so that even in the midst of the chaos of this tiny little passage, we can see that Jesus is Lord, that he has power over the people, over unclean spirits, over everything, in fact, and that what he brings, what he is creating, who he is, signals the coming of an entirely different kingdom. As Dean McGowan says, an alternative kingdom, suggesting that the people in the passage, and perhaps us as well, we have a choice between what is, what surrounds us, and Jesus' alternative, a kingdom that stands in opposition to all that the Israelites know to be normal, and in many ways, what we know to be normal. Now we know, if you've been following along for the last little bit, last season or so, that we've just come out of a year where we heard an awful lot from the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew is very, very interested in defining the difference between these two kingdoms. So we know a little bit about this already, that what Jesus is coming to offer is something unique, something different. We know that he comes into conflict with the religious elites over and over again. We know that he comes into conflict with the Roman Empire, who ultimately crucifies him. We know that he breaks the rules choosing to follow some of the law, but then choosing to ignore quite a bit of it as well, especially when the law seems that it lacks compassion and it leads people to a place of exclusivity. And so what we have here is the introduction to this Jesus that you and I already know. This is the way he chooses to be seen for the first time. These are his, open, his opening arguments. This is his personal statement. Mark wants to make it clear right from the very beginning that Jesus has something to say. And as Andrew McGowan says, he hasn't come to talk to us about religion or to teach us how to live a better life. In this passage, it is exceedingly clear that what he has come to do is defeat the power of evil and to build something new, something good. And so we begin with this idea that he is teaching with authority. And for me, I have always read this to mean that in some way he was self-possessed, right? That he stood up in front of them, he knew who he was, he knew what he was called to do, and he stood up and he taught what he knew to be true, without flinching, without fear, without hesitation. This is the image of a human being fully alive, knowing what God has called you to do and standing there unapologetically doing it. 
This is what Jesus does. He teaches with authority, knowing the call and vocation that God has given him and having the will and the power and the grace to go and do it. So whenever I read this passage, I imagine him as one who is comfortable with who he is, even though he knows where he's going to end up and how that's going to go. He is self-possessed in this moment. He is confident. He is himself, even from the very beginning. And then the passage turns a little bit. And Mark tells us that someone with an unclean spirit cries out, presumably in the voice of that spirit, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? And there are a few interesting things about this exchange. First, folks have generally assumed that this is the spirit, the unclean spirit that's talking to him, naming him. And by the way, it's the unclean spirit who actually verbally introduces him, right? It's the unclean spirit who says, you are the son of the living God, you. Because the text tells us that the unclean spirit is a demon and thus has special knowledge that the people don't have. So notice, this is his introduction. Someone else introducing him, not the other way around. And at the same time, I think we have to take note of the fact that these words are still coming out of a human being, even if we're attributing them to the spirit. And so we could also read this to say that this human, this person who's a part of this society and a part of this system and presumably as comfortable in their surroundings as we often are, has said, have you come to destroy us? And so the other way you could read this is, have you come to destroy the Roman Empire, the religious elites? Have you come to destroy this system in which we, most of us live occasionally, mostly quite comfortably, quite happily? And then Jesus commands the unclean spirit to come out of him. And it does, and people are amazed. That not only can he teach and interpret the scriptures with authority, that the spirits obey him, name him, identify him, and obviously in some ways fear him, or they wouldn't do what he said. Now, whenever we talk about a story like this, I feel like we have to take a step back and talk about how we interpret this, because I think for most of us in our sort of post-postmodern context, that it's really hard to connect to stories like this, that it's really hard to wrap our heads around what this means. And there are many Christians in the world who believe in this literally, right? I'm sure that you've heard some of that rhetoric in the world. And there are many other Christians on the other end of the spectrum who believe in this, not at all. Not at all. This is just a symbolic story. What some of you have probably heard me say already because we've been together for almost six years, and I think that this is the most helpful interpretation of these stories, so I'm quite sure I've said it before, is that when we hear about stories like this with demons and unclean spirits, the most helpful thing we can often do is think about it as the things that keep us from community. Because that's what they did for the ancients, too. Someone with an unclean spirit wouldn't typically have been allowed in the temple. This guy probably sneaked in with the crowd. That person wouldn't probably have been able to live with their family or to have kind of all that we would think of as a normal life. They would have been shunned and sort of pushed out of civil society. They would have been very much alone and they would have struggled with one or maybe many things. And so for us, it's most helpful, I think, to think of these stories as the things that keep us from community, from healthy relationship, from living our full and abundant healthy lives. Now these could be patterns 
or routines or particular choices or particular problematic relationships, sometimes addictions or um, things that we do to get in our own way. It could have been broken relationships, broken spirits. Some have argued that it could also be um, an understanding of sort of emotional and mental health. I'm a little wary of that interpretation, but it's, it's been argued many times. And what Jesus does, regardless of what it is, is he calls that thing out. He calls it out of the person and he heals the person of whatever it is that is binding them and limiting them and keeping them from living a whole and fulsome, healthy life with good relationships and in good, good connection to their community. He restores them. This person in particular would have been restored to the covenant of the people and able to live sort of with everyone again. And he sends whatever the problem is away. One more thing to say about that. Lest we only point this idea toward other people, because it's very easy to do that, every single one of us has something that we need Jesus to help us with and to send away from us. Every single one of us. It may not look just like this, but every single one of us has something that we need Jesus to heal us of. And so there is a way for this passage to talk to all of us if we think about our overall health, relationships, connections with community, the decisions we make, the choices. So in this passage, Jesus' kingdom is set apart as one of health and wholeness, but as a place where everything is very different from the world as we know it. We're not gonna talk too much about Paul in the epistle, even though it's a fascinating text, but he's kind of about the same thing here. He's really interested in pointing out that the kingdom is very different, and you can live in the kingdom in very different ways, but Paul is worried about the optics and sort of keeping other people out of the kingdom because they're confused and they don't have extra knowledge. But Paul would agree that what Jesus is doing is building something entirely different and entirely new. So the question is, what do we do with this ancient passage and with this idea of a different kingdom? What does it have to say to you as you leave this place and go back into the kingdom in which we live and wonder about the kingdom that is to come? This week, there were two things that came to mind for me. The first is something that the Protestant reformers talked about a lot. It was one of the core pieces of the Reformation, one of the core things that called us away from the Roman church, from the historical understanding. And that is called solus Christus in Latin, or in Christos solo, and it means in English, only Christ. Only in Christ. And it is the idea that we are saved by nothing else. Not by the good things we do, not by the good things we say, not by what we have, not by what we store up, not by what we leave behind, not by anything else under the sun do we create or earn or merit our salvation. It is given to us by Jesus alone. In him we are made whole. In him we are saved. And so if that becomes our anchor, if he becomes our anchor, and we want to live and to learn to love like he did, 
then it means that we start identifying ourselves in different ways. It means that we start making different choices. It means that the cares and concerns of this world that wraps us up suddenly look a little bit different. And it means that the things that would limit us or hurt us or keep us from community are the very things that we need to try to leave behind. If we believe in him, if we put our trust in him, then we come to know that with his help, we can do anything. And so then here's the second thing which follows from the first, that if we know that and we choose that, then we become part of this entirely different kingdom. And as is suggested by the text often, we are called to be in this world and part of Jesus's work, but not of this world. There are many places, particularly in the New Testament, where we hear that sort of sentiment from Jesus and from some of the other authors, that we don't belong here, that we're on a journey that goes through here, that there's meaning, that it's important, but that the things that make us who we are don't belong here, and so neither do we. We are sort of on a temporary visa, like tourists passing through. We're meant to belong and to choose to belong to this alternative kingdom, which can be a little hard, I think, to navigate sometimes, especially when we do have healthy relationships and we do love our work and we do love the things that make our life here our life. But the call of our baptism and the call for us as Christians is always to, to remember that we are part of this kingdom that is first and foremost about love and justice and health and wholeness. And as Mark would suggest, and as he does in this passage, it's a kingdom that looks remarkably different than the one that we live in now because it's pure and honest and good and kind and peaceful and egalitarian. And we're meant to find ourselves and our identity and our very being in the midst of that kingdom, not this one. So the question of the gospel this morning, this packed little tiny passage from the gospel of Mark, is where do you find your identity? What do you hear in Jesus' introduction? Do you? And if you don't, can you learn to put your whole trust in this rebellious, radical teacher who seems to teach new things with authority? Do you choose this alternative kingdom as your home? Do you know that you don't belong here but to him? And how does that change the way that you live and the way that you feel and the way that you think and the way that you act even now? What does that tell you about who you are? Without the things that define you here, what does that teach you about whose you are? Amen.